Welcome to episode 29 of You Are Not A Frog, caring for yourself whilst coping with loss. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. You can also download CPD forms to help you reflect on what you've just heard in the podcast to make this as useful for you as possible. In this episode, I talked to the GP, Jonathan Griffiths. Now, he is a blogger and a TEDx speaker, and he lost his son 20 years ago. And he talks to me about his journey, what he did when it happened, how he looked after himself, what he needed. So he's very open and honest about what we can all do in times of loss to look after ourselves and look after our family. Here's the episode. So it's really great to have with me on the podcast today, Jonathan Griffiths. Now, Jonathan is a GP, um, he's a portfolio GP, and he's also the primary care advisor to the STP up in Cheshire. And he's a blogger and a TEDx speaker. So welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be with you. So Jonathan sort of got in touch with me because I think we had my friend Jo Scrivens on the podcast a while back talking about when she lost her mum and how she coped as a doctor with loss and Jonathan has had a really well significant loss in your life haven't you Jonathan and and you've gone on to do lots of work around that and speaking around that and we thought it'd be really good to discuss that on the podcast and just share some of that with the listeners just in case it's helpful for anyone else so Jonathan yeah what were your feelings about that how it could be helpful for people yeah, so I wrote a blog recently called Doctors Lose People Too and gave my tips for bereaved healthcare professionals because it's one of these things I think that people still don't talk about. And my bereavement was back in a number of years ago, but it was our son who died. So our son who suddenly became unwell just around Christmas time, he was only 10 months old at the time, uh, developed a petechial rash, ended up in hospital. We thought it was something simple, maybe like some uh, low platelets that would sort, sort themselves out. It was low platelets, but he had actually quite a devastating illness, uh, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, which I'd never heard of as a doctor and had to Google it. It's a very rare hematological condition. And he spent the rest of his life in Birmingham Children's Hospital. So the condition required him to have a bone marrow transplant. Uh, so he had went through all the chemotherapy associated with that, had the transplant. That was successful, but he succumbed to a, a respiratory infection. And so he died in the July. And we all have to accept that we are going to be bereaved. You know, it actually is part of life, isn't it? We will all go through bereavement at some point. I think there was something about losing your own child, which is a bit different and we found that really very difficult and we had his twin sister so we still have our daughter she's now 17 and so for us we had that experience of living in the hospital for those seven months 
and then picking up the pieces of our lives um, following on from that. And it was just one of the things I thought it was worthwhile perhaps sharing how I think I've got through that process. Mm. And many people say, well, I could never have dealt with what you've dealt with. I think people can and do all the time and, and you don't know what you can deal with until you actually go through it. And equally, but I didn't want to say, you know, this is how you should get through it. Mm. And this, these are things that you have to do if you're bereaved, because I also recognise that everybody is very different. And what was helpful for me isn't necessarily going to be helpful for anybody else. But nevertheless, I thought worth sharing some of the things that I felt were helpful um, for me getting through that experience. Yeah, thank you. It is really helpful for people to share it because you have no idea about how you're going to react to a situation until you're in it, do you? Were you surprised at your reaction there or did you react in a way you, you could have predicted? But when you're in it, you're not analysing it like that. So, so you're not thinking, oh, how am I going to cope with this? <laughs> you, you just do it. And you just have to literally take one day at a time. And, and in fact, one of my pieces of advice to people isn't in my blog, but if you are actually suffering from acute anxiety, acute trauma, whatever it might be, and you, and you can't see a way forward, actually all you need to do is take the next step. So can you stay, see... The next step that you have to take or, you, or you're going to take or you want to take and don't worry about anything else don't worry about what's after that step just take the next step so what do i have to do now i'm going to do that and i'm going to worry about the next step after that once i've done this and that can be a really helpful thing because sometimes you can get overwhelmed with anxiety about what might happen in the future and in fact you just need to take one step at a time one step at a time deal with that next thing and then the thing after that, and the thing after that. Uh, and I'm not sure I consciously thought that when we were going through it. And of course, when we're going through it, we believed he was going to survive. You know, he wasn't given a terminal diagnosis. We were expecting he was going to come through this. We were expecting that he would have the brain and transplant, it was successful, and that one day he would come home. Uh, apologies if you could now hear the dog drinking out. <laughs> it's a very noisy dog. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so apologies for <laughs> all the interruptions that just make okay. life real, don't they? Yeah, um, yeah. So we weren't expecting that it would end like this, and mm. he was on intensive care, and you know we knew he was doing okay, but not uh, brilliantly. When you're not in intensive care, this was way back then, so it may be different now. We could stay and sleep overnight if he's on the ward in his room, as I'm sure is, is the case for pediatric wards, but not when he was in intensive care. So you could sit in a chair and stay there all night if you wished. Uh, but we had accommodation with, uh, with Edward's house, which was a charity called Edward's Trust. The house bit doesn't exist anymore. I think it's uh, became one of the Ronald McDonald houses, but it was run by an independent charity at the time. And we had a room there. So we, in fact, we were, both my wife and I happened to be there in that room that night. And I think our daughter was being looked after by grandparents. And then we got a call in the middle of the night saying, can you come now because it's unwell? And nothing quite prepares you for arriving and, and seeing your own child um, having CPR. Um, but that's what happened when we got there. And you know, there, there are some moments that I will never forget, just being there and, and actually then realising and knowing that he wasn't going to survive and just having our last, our last moments with him. You're not prepared for that um, to happen. So it wasn't something that I had spent time thinking before, how will I cope with this? <laughs> because you, you're not going to go there. You're not going to go there. 
and when it does you just do and that was a you know and then ringing our parents that day to say what had happened and, and dealing with with their grief when you're grieving yourself and that was that was tough that was really tough but yeah you don't analyze it at the time and it's only after the event that you can start looking back and then the things that i've done subsequently to take myself forward and you know, getting back to work and how i did that are all things that you just take one step at a time i think that's really good advice particularly i guess at the moment we're in the middle of covid and a lot of people are feeling really anxious and even though they might not be acutely bereaved minds are erasing about what could happen and yeah. what if this or that and so we're constantly pre-living stuff hasn't actually happened yet yeah and I, and I think that the covid situation is really tricky and it is very anxiety inducing isn't it and i think it's hard to know and i think taking one step at a time is helpful there's an element of you we need to be prepared but we're not quite sure what we're preparing ourselves for and that makes it really hard i think the onslaught of information that is both in our email inboxes but also on social media but i'm, I'm having now to limit my social media so on one hand i'm finding it helpful because it's giving me information and some of the information is really useful on the other hand i'm reading stuff that's making me really anxious and of course you forget that for the majority of people this is going to be a a mild illness and instead I'm reading about oh this young person on a ventilator with no underlying chronic disease and I'm thinking I don't even know if it's true but suddenly I'm anxious about my own health and so you end up with this anxiety about yourself and your family but then also about well what's work going to be like and you're worried about how you're going to cope with that so so I'm limiting my social media at the moment just to try and keep myself sane that's a positive thing for me to do that and, and to not get stuck in there the constant negativity and anxiety provoking stuff that, that otherwise you can find in your feeds. Mm. I'm trying to stick to reading official guidance and official advice. So I'm very skeptical of the stuff that says, oh, we've heard you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, unless I'm seeing that from an official source. So if it's on the NHS or it's on the government websites, okay, fine. Trying to limit my reading to the stuff that's coming through from my CCG. That's giving me the, the, the formal advice about what we should be doing and how we should be preparing and, and things I'm getting from my professional networks. Uh, but it's very difficult and, you, and your mind does run away with you at the moment. And I think just trying to be clear about well, what is real and what is hype is the wrong word. because that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's yeah. the, uh, the stuff that is coming at you that is being escalated on social media. Not all of it is true. A lot of it makes you feel really anxious. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, 100% agree. And that I did a podcast a week or so ago with Dr. Caroline Walker, and we were talking about actually the, the need to limit your consumption of the news yeah. and social media and stuff because actually that that doesn't help with the pre living that we're doing. Actually, someone's made a really good suggestion. I was in a, a group coaching call with my community last night, and someone said actually one thing they do is have a folder on their email with, with COVID guidance. So they're not reading mm. it all day, but if they see something they need to read, they'll stick it in the folder and read it at a set time. So they're not constantly consuming, consuming all of that. That's a really good idea because the thing about it as well is you lose the information because there's so many emails about it. And actually, how would you even search for an email about COVID? Because you, you, we're getting multiple yeah. emails a day, all with the same words. I, I don't even know what I'd search for. And you're thinking, oh, what was that thing CCG sent out advising about? You've lost it unless you put it somewhere sensible. So that's really good advice, actually. Yeah. yeah. 
So Jonathan, can we just go back to, you know, the way that you dealt with your son's death? and what you did because I sort of reading on that amazing article you sent out recently about you know when we lose people we love and that was on LinkedIn we'll, we'll put that in the the show notes and it's on your, yeah. your blog wasn't it because I think that hopefully you know most of our listeners won't have experienced the loss of a, a child and that I just mm. think that must be the most dreadful dreadful thing but lots of us would have experienced other sorts of loss like relationship breakdown loss of parents all that sort of thing which is you know still really really quite significant isn't it and i think whatever way you look at it that it's still grief isn't it it's still loss yeah in your journey what were the things that you did that were really helpful and what were the things that you did that were unhelpful <laughs> or that other people did that were unhelpful perhaps okay so i think be kind to yourself mm. okay and that is also then stopping and taking notes of what you need to do to get yourself right again. So, and this might be time. And I know that doctors find this really, really hard, but you need to take the time that you need. So for me, you know, my son went off, um, sorry, went to hospital in the December. He, he died in the July. I went off sick. So I took that entire time off sick and I returned, I think it was the October, so two or three months after. So I took nine months off. And I just want to tell you that I, that was the absolutely the right thing for me to have done. And there is no way that I could have been a doctor to my patients uh, during that time. Uh, and if I'd have tried to have done that, I couldn't have been a parent and a husband in an adequate way. So I would have failed at both. You know, I'd have failed at being a doctor I'd have failed at being a husband and a father. Uh, it would have been a total lose-lose situation. So we all just need to, to stop and think, okay, in this situation now, do I need to take time? So if you've been bereaved, if you're going through a relationship breakdown, whatever it might be, are you actually able to work? And this also be true for people that are suffering from significant stress um, in the workplace uh, or mental health issues, depression. Are, are you fit to work uh, because if you're not then you're not uh, helping your patients and don't do it and remaining at work when you're not able to give it your all is dangerous for you and it is dangerous for the people that you're trying to serve so don't uh, do it and then I also then thought really carefully about how I was going to return to work uh, so nine months off is not an insignificant length of time to be away and I was really anxious about getting back into work. And I'd had a little bit of CBT. <laughs> Another story, I had to have it because medical sickness said that they would only pay me for being off if I had CBT. So I didn't really want CBT. I felt very kind of aggrieved that I had to have CBT, but I had CBT. But one of the things that was helpful about it was that they talked about getting back into the workplace and having a phased return into, into work and not just going back from being off to full-time general practice again so I did have this phased return and the other thing that I did so a friend of mine do you remember the Trini and Susanna the oh, yeah. fashion thing at the time so a friend of mine was really into Trini and Susanna and she said look I'm going to take you shopping for, for new clothes to wear at, uh, at work and she'd actually booked me into a department store you know you can go and have a, a shopper a personal shopper so she booked me a personal shopper and we spent the morning or the afternoon in the suit department and I spent a load of money on brand new suits. I'd never, I'd never used to wear suits. I was a jumper kind of guy, but I bought suits and I went back into work looking 
different and looking professional, I power dressed, basically. And it sounds daft, but it made a massive difference. And it really helped my confidence. And I think people who were at work who maybe were anxious for me about returning to work could see, you know, he's back. And he looks like he's back. And he looks like he's ready for this. And that was, that was really positive. So it was preparing, taking the time that I needed to, not feeling guilty about that, and then preparing for the return to work as well. And I was getting feedback that some of other people, colleagues, were wondering why I was off for so long. You know, why is he not back, back at work? Um, so I was getting a bit of negative feedback around that. But it was just a matter of, you know, that wasn't helpful from them. So in terms of what did other people do that was unhelpful, mm-hmm. that was unhelpful mm-hmm. and for me. So I guess the flip side, if you've got a colleague who's going through something like this or anything at all like this, please be kind to them. If they need to be off, they need to be off. You know, don't be putting them under pressure. It might be difficult for you. I appreciate that. And, you know, and that's why we don't like taking time off. We know that it affects our colleagues, but we need to be kind to each other as well as to ourselves. Yeah. But I, I decided I was not going to feel guilty, take the time that I needed, and it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that guilty feeling is so prevalent. You know, I've been talking to, you know, I know a few GPs offer at the moment with COVID and they're sat with COVID doing telephone video consultations from home when they're feeling really ill. Actually, most of them have had it really quite mildly, which is, which is good. But one of them said to me, well, if this wasn't COVID, I'd be at work. <laughs> I'd yeah. be there. And, you know, traditionally, we have only taken time off if we're pretty much at death's door. I did a whole yeah. surgery with appendicitis once. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> went to the person next door at lunchtime, went, can you just have a feel of my tummy? And, you know, it was appendicitis. I had it out that evening. But we have this hero complex that we should just persist and carry on despite anything. And so that sort of means that when other people are off, we expect that they should be soldiering on and what we don't realize is that actually if they are off they are probably really not able to be at work because 99 percent of doctors have the same mindset that they would be in if at all possible but we start our minds start telling us stories of well how come they're off is it really that bad and can they really not cope but absolutely the realization that if it was you you would be there if at all possible but you're not yeah no i think i think that's right and you just have to kind of go with it and be kind to other people and recognise where they are at. And, you know, you know, these people. you work with them, they're your colleagues. Yeah. And I'm sure if you stop and think about it, you will realise, OK, yeah, they wouldn't be off if they didn't really need to be. Yeah. So just give them that opportunity to, to do that. Yeah. How did you communicate with your colleagues at that time? It was tricky. I'd, I kept in touch as best as possible. I mean, we were in a bit of a bubble. We were in a kind of a, if you can imagine, we've got, you know, still got our daughter so a toddler so she learned to walk and talk in the hospital we lived really in the hospital and this was really so this would have been way back in 2004 Um, so we didn't have the whatsapp groups and the facebook messenger and all that kind of stuff social media contacting wasn't really there so you know i can't really remember i must have had the odd i must have phoned i must have would have had email wouldn't we (laughs) <laughs> I think we went about the email in 2004. So I probably emailed and I probably phoned, but I can't really remember that actually. Yeah. And probably that wasn't at the, the forefront of what you were thinking about. You know, it was fully focused on your, your family, I would think, rather than, oh, I need to communicate with my colleagues. Absolutely. And, you know, and I was getting sick notes from my doctor and sending those in. And, mm. and maybe, that's how I, maybe that's how I communicated. I remember my surgery were, so I had some difficulties in terms of some of colleagues, in terms of how they thought about me being off, I think. And it was getting back to work was difficult but having said that you know the staff 
who all turned out for the funeral, who clearly this meant something significant to them as well. So I did, on one hand, found it difficult at times, but others um, very supported. Yeah. So give yourself enough time. Yes. That's one thing. Plan how you're going to return back to work. Yes. Yeah. Whatever's helpful to you. Yes. And then I think then you need to then be prepared. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. So there are things that we as doctors, healthcare professionals, will end up having to deal with that may well re-trigger the, the trauma that you have experienced. So for me, so I've already talked about it, you know, in terms of seeing my son have CPR. So then how do you cope when you have to have your CPR training, which you have to do every year? So you know, if you know, for example, that that is going to be an issue for you, what are you going to do? You can't not do your CPR training. It's one of the mandatory things you have to do. So, but it's daft to pretend it's going to be easy and that you're going to be all right. So prepare yourself. That might just be mentally preparing yourself. Okay, I'm going to have to go through this. It's going to be awful. Is it telling some people around you, you know, please remember last time I saw anybody having CPR, it was my son. Are you going to actually go to a trainer and say, can I have one-to-one CPR training, please? Uh, And this is why. You know, whatever you need to do, do that, but just be ready for it. Are you going to have to see people who had the same condition as the person, your your loved one who's died? How are you going to deal with that? If your loved one has died from cancer, how are you going to deal with the next patient you see who has that cancer? And sometimes you have to compartmentalise it. So in the moment, you just have to shift that thought into a different part of your brain and do your consultation but then be good to yourself, be kind to yourself, you know, go and have a cup of tea, do what you need to do afterwards, have a cry, if that's what you need to do, acknowledge to yourself, well, that was really tough, wasn't it? And some things you can prepare for, but sometimes it's a matter of, I know at some point I'm going to be in that situation. I don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> How am I going to deal with it when it does? Because you can't predict it. And sometimes for me, I can be feeling fine and then somebody will say something or do something and it'll just trigger a memory and you're feeling awful and you're right back into it again and you just need to be prepared for those moments to to hit you and almost kind of think okay when I do what am I going to do am I going to can I leave that environment maybe I can in the middle of consultation you probably can't no, no. and you probably do have to do that compartmentalization bit don't you put it in a different part of your brain finish what you're doing and then deal with your emotions afterwards I think that's the important bit isn't it Yes, compartmentalise it, but don't leave it in that compartment. That's right. Yeah. So at some point, acknowledge and deal with it. And that might be, you know, a text to somebody that you know is supportive, whether that's your partner or another loved one. You know, it it might be talking to a colleague, just saying, gosh, I just have to deal with this. Uh, It might be saying, actually, I need to go and go for a walk. Actually, I'm either going to run my surgery late or can you help me? And and actually, my experience when, when a colleague says to me, 
actually, Jonathan, I need some help this afternoon. Can you make that phone call? Can you see that patient? It might be that they're being overwhelmed or whatever it might be. I'm going to say, of course, I'll see that patient for you. That's absolutely fine. And I, and I think my colleagues would do the same for me. So if I needed to just take a moment and they understood what was going on, or even if they didn't, you know, if I was to say that, I think our colleagues are sensitive enough to say, of course. And it's part of being, again, be kind to each other. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, doctors ask for help so rarely that if you have a colleague that's asking you, that's massive alarm bells, crumbs, okay, yes, of course they'll help. And and what's going on for you? And is there anything else, any other support that we can give you? Yes, yeah. Be open about it as well. And so if you've been through a significant loss, then the people that work with you, if they know that, that that can help you through and you can be open about it and that can help you to prepare and deal with it when these situations arise. Do you think that people are as empathetic and sympathetic and as helpful when it's been a different source of loss like a I guess a relationship breakdown a divorce or you know something else other than a I guess we can all imagine what a bereavement what a death is like but there's all sorts of other stuff isn't there yeah and I'm not sure that people are necessarily and I think mm-hmm. there's something about how long you allow people to feel like this for and so, you know, one of the points that I, that I made was as an individual with a bereavement is not expecting to get over it. Yeah. But I think we can actually you, you ever really get over a significant bereavement. It's just something that, that becomes part of you and you, you deal with it in a different way. And it feels different over time. So you do not feel the same forever that you did in that acute moment of loss, but you are changed forever. People allow you to be grieving for a certain period of time and they kind of stop allowing you to grieve and they don't need the slack anymore. And I think that probably with other kinds of loss, that timeline is condensed even even more. Mm. So if you're suffering from a relationship breakdown, divorce, whatever it might be, people are going to be very sympathetic with you, I'm sure, in the short term, but they probably are not as sympathetic for as long as they might be with the kind of bereavement that I've um, suffered but that, maybe that's a message for us all, actually, that we need to be aware that anybody will have these, this grieving process will take a different length of time for different people. We need to be sensitive to that. Yeah, and I guess with a relationship breakdown, a divorce, you're also then having to live with the ongoing consequences and the ongoing difficulties of bringing children up on your own or different relationship with the, your partner and childcare and all those other things as well. So it's not just done and dusted, is it? Absolutely not. And the practical you know, implications of, as you say, of, of a divorce with children involved are huge. That Don't just go away. And uh, how do you suddenly, you know, how do you manage childcare and work when there's suddenly only the one of you doing it rather than the two? And, and we need to just be, stop, be sympathetic, uh, just think and try and put yourself into the shoes of the other person, which can be really difficult to do. Okay, what, what are they going through and how can I help to support them with that? So how did people help and support you practically in that time of... So I think, I think we had a lot of support when he was in hospital yeah. and practical support, actually. So people brought us meals. Um, you know, I don't think we hardly cooked anything for that seven months. Just friends and family who would just turn up and say, here you go, I've, I've made you meals for this week. And that was helpful. I think giving us space, um, just being there, uh, not trying to tell us what to do. I think there were people who couldn't deal with it and people who disappeared because they couldn't deal with 
what, what they were going to say to us. And they were so worried about saying the wrong thing that they just didn't say anything. And they disappeared really from our, from our friendships. There weren't many of those. And I think if I was giving advice to, to if you know somebody who's been through a significant loss, uh, bereavement, actually, you might not know what to say. Unless you're very insensitive, you probably can't make things worse. Yeah. Because really, you know, I, my son's just died. Can you really make that worse by anything that you say? You probably can't. And actually saying something is better than saying nothing. Even if it is saying, I really don't know what to say, yeah. but I'm here. Uh, you know, somebody turning up on the door to take me out for a drink, you know, give me a bottle of whiskey and saying, that's for you, let's go and have a drink. And uh, I think just saying, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm here. And also people turning up at the door and are saying, actually, if you don't mind, can you go away again? Yeah. <laughs> and saying, of course, that's absolutely fine. But then not staying away forever, you know, not taking that as a, as a snub that I don't ever want to see you again. Mm. Then they come back again. And so for, for sometimes you just need to be there and continue being there and waiting for that individual, that couple, that family to be ready to be in, engaging again. But be there, yeah. be there for them. And, and that was the key thing. People uh, didn't give up on us and didn't walk away. Yeah. So be there, keep being there, even if you are turned down or turned away or whatever. And yeah, and, yeah. and practical help is good. Practical help, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now I know in your blog you talked about exercise as well and being active. Yes. You know, I dabbled with bits of exercise before. You know, I'd been a member of a gym and I'd done that for a while, and then we spent these seven months, as you can imagine, this the situation. We ate well people were feeding us but then we also were eating takeaway and mm. you know all the things that you you would expect not cooking not exercising not going anywhere we did you know we'd take our daughter in a pushchair around into birmingham from the hospital most days when we were there so we'd be getting a bit of walking exercise but that was it but we put on weight we didn't feel healthy we, we didn't feel fit and then friends of ours, it, was, it came together with kind of what can we do to give back to the charity that supported us? So Edwards Trust, who provided accommodation for us, but also provide, I mean, anyone who's in the Birmingham area, I'm sure will know of Edwards Trust. So they provide counselling for bereaved parents and bereaved mm -hmm. children. So if you are a healthcare professional in the Birmingham area and you've got patients who've been bereaved in this way, definitely look up Edwards mm -hmm. Trust. We wanted to give back to Edwards Trust and raise money for them. So we did a ball, we did a charity ball, which raised a lot of money. But then also a friend said, you know, why don't we do a half marathon? Yeah. And I'd never run anything like that at all. And so we picked the Stafford half marathon. And I think we gave ourselves six months and we kind of Googled, well, how do you train for a half marathon? I, I had no idea. Found something online. I think it was, I think, Hal Higdon, who does half marathon and marathon training. It's a website, so you can, uh, and basically his, his thing said, right, this is the beginner half marathon training schedule. And it said, if you can run for half an hour, three times a week, now that's a bit of a challenge getting to that point. Mm -hmm. if, you do the, if you do the catch to 5K, you can, you'll be running for half an hour. So if you do the catch to 5K, and if you can do half an hour, three times a week, you just follow this schedule and you will be able to run a half marathon at the end of the schedule. So we thought, fine. So we'll do it. And we did. And it's been transformational for me because I found that I liked running and I found that I was good at running. But not at first. 
<laughs> you know, the, the first time I put on a pair of running shoes and ran around the block, you know, I felt like I was going to collapse and die. It was awful. You know, I had chest pains. I, I was sweating. I could hardly breathe. It was awful. Absolutely awful. But then you, you carry on and you carry on doing the training. And, and the thing that got me through that training was actually the thought of our son. Sometimes when it was felt really, really hard, it was like, well, okay, this might be hard. But, you know, I've not been in intensive care. I've not had chemotherapy. I've not had to go through all that he went through. And if, what, if I'm complaining about this feeling a bit hard and I'm a bit tired, you know, come on, pull yourself together. This is nothing. And that genuinely got me through the training of, of the half marathon. But uh, then I didn't stop running after doing the half marathon. So we, we did that. We had a two-hour target for the half marathon, which everyone told me at the time was a good target. I think I did it in one hour 52. So we did wow, it well under that. And I've done other half marathons since. I think my best was a one hour 37, 38 or something. Brilliant. So, you know, found that I could do this. Yeah. And it's something that I was good at. And actually, exercise is amazing. So for me, it might be running, but it, but it could be anything. Swimming, cycling, going to the gym, football, golf, walking, yoga, aerobics. You know, you pick your exercise. It doesn't matter what it is. It does make you feel better. Yes. And getting outside is part of that for me. So, so I, I'm not averse to doing a, a home workout or going to the gym and doing things indoors if need be, as we pretty much all are at the moment with the yes. COVID situation. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, actually getting outside and running in fresh air for me it is, is amazing. Uh, getting out, walking in the fresh air, getting out onto the, I particularly like going out to the mountains and I, I don't do fell running very often, but when I do it, I absolutely love it. I remember particularly difficult conversations in my negotiating my return to work and coming home feeling really, really uptight and wound up. And then a friend of mine, we'd arranged to play golf. I'm a very, very bad golfer, but we'd arranged to play golf. And by the time I'd done that game, that round of golf, yeah. the thoughts had all gone. And it has this magical ability to go and do something where you're focusing just on that and you come back and everything has changed. Yeah. Interesting. it's not just exercise that any, any activity that can distract you is really helpful for stress isn't it and I used to be along to a so before all of this before my son died I used to belong to a choir a choral society and we used to sing really quite difficult choral music mm-hmm. and it was a Monday night rehearsals and it was like I think why am I doing this I have a really mm-hmm. busy Monday as a GP I would literally go straight from work to the choir no time to eat anything and feeling really stressed, as you do at the end of a long Monday. But then two hours in choir, and you'd come back, uh, oh, did I go to work today? I, you know, I can't, I can't remember, you know. And just being able to concentrate on something very different that I had to concentrate on because it was difficult, but different to work, made such a difference. So although I'm saying this about activity, and I think there is something about exercise I would yeah. want to reinforce that is great. Other things can have a similar yeah. effect uh, just in terms of distracting you and, and taking your mind off things. Yeah, for sure. Because all these things that we do, sort of hobbies and things, they get us into flow where you are completely absorbed. And that, that's a really, in terms of well-being, it's really, really helpful for us to do something regularly yeah. that gets you into flow, like singing, like running, like playing an instrument, like playing a board game. I've actually got a podcast ready to go with Emma Pez, who runs a, an organisation called Singing Nation, and that's all about community, mm. community choirs. And she says that choirs actually hit all five of the, the NHS five ways to wellbeing. So they hit the connection 
and with other people they hit the being active because you're quite active when you sing aren't they they hit the yeah. sort of giving because obviously often it's sort of giving with the community it hits the sort of learning doing things differently and it hits the noticing and being very mindful in the moment so those five things we will put out the podcast soon but I was going to put it out the week that we were all told to stay at home <laughs> so uh, I thought probably yeah. need to leave that until we can all leave our houses and actually do something about it so yeah. singing really really important gets you into flow but I think yeah yeah and the connecting thing is, is really important isn't it and at this moment in time with the covid connecting really important thing for us to be doing in whatever way you can but exercise is a way that you can connect as well. So, so yeah, I will run on my own, but I probably prefer running with friends. And it's, it's different kinds of running, and we'll run and we'll chat and, and we'll talk. And that's a really positive thing to do. So the best Facebook group that I'm a member of is the Sweaty Vertebrate Healthcare Professionals group. So I'm giving a, a shout out to them. Send us the link. <laughs> so they're really good. So that any healthcare professional that's into any kind of exercise and what's fantastic about that so you, you have to answer the, the screening questions to get in it's a private group but that literally is what makes you sweat and what kind of healthcare professional are you and is the most supportive group and you know i've met some of them in real in real life now as well but not many but just that ability to be positive and to connect in that way and, and people just post what they're doing the exercise they've done that morning also opened my eyes for me opened my eyes up to it's not just running so there are people on there that are doing weightlifting, that are doing gym work, doing CrossFit, are doing different sports. And for me, it's sort of actually, perhaps I should be a bit more rounded than just running and do some of the kinds of workouts which I've started to do. But yeah, exercise, I, I cannot push it enough. No, I mean, it does make you feel so much better. The, the reason I'm sat here in my sort of sweaty gear and everything's a sweaty mess is that, yeah, a friend of mine is running a virtual circuits training at nine o'clock every morning in the week. And we all sort of get together and I sit on my roof terrace and we do that. And it is, I've realised because we're, you know, at home at the moment all the time, isolating. And, you know, just to know that once a day, getting physical moving my body it's done wonders for my mental health actually I feel much better than I did last week when I wasn't really getting out and doing much and there is so much evidence isn't there for exercise for mental health but for productivity yeah. just for all sorts of things so you know watch this space we've recorded some self-isolation exercise circuit training videos so we'll put that up for people to access really soon but I know, I think and there's a lot out there at the moment. I think yeah. Lots of people are responding, aren't they, with stuff. Mm. And so I think if you start looking online now for exercise yeah. workouts, there's yeah. a lot. I think I saw something from England rugby um, popped up. It's popped up on that Sweaty Health Professionals feed. Oh, yeah. Very good. A workout today as well. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about the importance of being kind to yourself and other people being kind to you as well. We've talked about being prepared to go back to work. We've talked about your house return we've talked about exercise and connecting and all those sorts of things is there anything else that you think is important for people to know or to realize or to do if they are facing a, a time of loss or bereavement or so i think people need to you need to allow yourself to enjoy things yeah. and and i think this is really really hard and so if you've been through a, a significant bereavement any bereavement the thought of being happy is tough you can't imagine yourself being happy and more than that i think you think if i am happy well no, no i shouldn't be happy okay i mean if i am this is somehow disrespectful it means that i didn't love that person enough that i've mm. forgotten about them that that 
this didn't mean and all of that is it comes in it almost like you feel guilty about being happy yeah and you need to give yourself permission to be happy again and to enjoy things and i talked about it in my blog so we had tickets to go and see dara o'brien the comedian probably within a year of our son dying and i remember going and thinking you know this is just really odd you know why why am i going to a comedy gig yeah, and, and I sat there, you know, he, he was funny and the, and the people around you were all laughing and, and you think, you know, how can you be laughing? You, know, you also, yeah, this is awful. You know, I'm in this bereavement. Yeah. How can I be laughing? And there was almost a conscious decision that, you know, I, I'm going to allow myself to enjoy this. I'm going to allow myself to laugh and to be happy. And I, and I did. And it felt fine. But you do almost need to consciously allow yourself and give yourself permission to do this. But I think it is really really important because there are still good things about life and there are still things that you can enjoy and you can still be happy and you're not going to feel this way forever and that's what I tell my patients that you know you might not get over it we talked about that but equally you're not going to feel the same as you are now forever and over time things will feel better they'll be different but they will feel better and you'll be able to cope with them in a better way so i think you know key message you know if you're going through this now please allow yourself at times to enjoy things that you would otherwise enjoy and to be happy yeah thank you so really important to allow happiness allow for joy and also allow for sadness and those other feelings yes yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can feel, and that's the thing, isn't it? You can feel happy and sad at the same time sometimes. Mm-hmm. But so it's, we've already talked about the need to acknowledge those feelings and those emotions when they come and hit you and give those space and time. But you can also allow yourself to be happy at times as well. Yeah, brilliant. Jonathan, thank you so much. That's been really, really helpful, really insightful. If people wanted to get hold of you, how can they sort of see more of your work and get hold of you? So you can get hold of me on, on Twitter. So I'm an at Dr. John Griffiths. That's without an H. So D-R-J-O-N Griffiths. You can find my blog at drjohngriffiths.wordpress.com. Brilliant. brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast another time. Uh, to good, cover. Yeah. There's so much more we could talk about. So that's really helpful. How long are you left for your isolation? How long have you got till you can leave the house? Yeah, so we're in household isolation because my daughter had a cough. Mm. And so that ends on Saturday. Of course, it's not that different to the lockdown that we're all in. Mm. <laughs> in reality, mm. apart from I can't go out for work and, and so on at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll be able to um, be, I'll be back at work, back in the surgery uh, on Monday next week. Yeah, okay, okay. Doing lots of phone calls in the meantime. Yeah, all the best with all of that. Yeah, thank you. Stay well and we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.